Hi, you're listening to Pally Matters, a podcast exploring the many realms of media, pop culture, and society, brought to you by the Pally Center for Media in New York and Los Angeles. My name is David Bushman. I am television curator at the Pally Center, and today we've gathered a panel of experts to ponder the many profound issues raised by the enduring popularity of perhaps the greatest comic book hero of all time, known variously as the Dark Knight, the Cape Crusader, or just the Batman who turned 80 years old in March, having been introduced by DC Comics' Bob Kane and Bill Finger in 1939 in a story titled The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, which was Detective Comics number 27, which in the year 2012 sold for $1.7 million. So what's so great about Batman? That's what we're going to discuss today. We're joined in the studio by two guests and remotely by two more. Let's start by going around the room, introduce yourselves, and tell us a little bit briefly for now about your own relationship with Batman. You want to start with Arlen? Should I continue? <laughs> start. <laughs> wow. Um, it's so funny. I brought with me wow. my, when I was 12 years old in 1970. What's your name? Oh, Arlen Schumer. Hi. Um, I'm an illustrator, and I was trained in graphic design, and um I was art director of Batmania magazine when I was in high school. I just pulled out a thing I did when I was 12 years old, influenced by Neil Adams. I wrote and drew my own version of the origin of Batman, and I still hold on to it. So when I lecture to kids, you know, I show them the artwork I did when I was a child. So, um, and then I ended up coming out of Rhode Island School Design and coming to New York City. I worked for Neil Adams the greatest living Batman artist, uh, in my opinion, and I think Michael might agree with me, and um, ended up working for him, which was like going to graduate school, and then ever since then, I've been on my own as a freelance artist, and I lecture on comics, and... Um, You're being modest because you've written one of the great books on, on comic book history, so why don't you tell us what the name of that book is? And I did a book called The Silver Age of Comic Book Art, in which Neil Adams is one of the chapters, all about the artist, basically, that... I came of age with, with growing up in the 1960s, also known as the Silver Age of Comics. So um, I was both old enough and yet young enough to be influenced by both Carmine Infantino, the great Batman artist of the 1960s, and then Neil Adams, who straddles the 60s and the 70s, and um, ended up, like I said, pursuing a career doing comic book art, not for the comic book companies, but for advertising and magazines and things like that. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So thanks, Brian. Hey, I'm uh, Brian Cronin from CBR.com. I've been writing about comics for CBR for over a decade now. Uh, I've written a couple of books, including Why Does Batman Carry Shark Repellent? And other comic book trivia. <laughs> Only one version of Batman carries shark repellent. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the main part of the story. Is exactly. That, is that in the 1950s, Batman had shark repellent on a comic book. Obviously, there's no way that the TV show knew that. But it's interesting. Okay. Michael. There. Um, so I started this crazy thing when I was about uh, four years old. Uh, my mom said I learned to read from comic books before I was four. Mm -hmm. I had a collection of over 30,000 by the time I graduated high school. My dad never was able to get the car into the garage. <laughs> Um, that was the life I led. I was at the first comic book conventions ever held on the planet Earth and was one of the early members of comic book fandom as it first formed in those ancient days before computers and social media. 
when I got to Indiana University in Bloomington, I took advantage of an experimental curriculum department they had and was able to convince the dean as an undergrad that I could teach the world's first college accredited course on comic books, which I did. And it was groundbreaking at the time. Uh, since then, I started working at DC Comics in 1972. Uh, that led me to the point of time where I was able to do something about the vow I made as a, uh, a, a, a as a boy when I saw the Batman TV series debut that first night, and uh, I was horrified um, that the whole world was laughing at Batman and he was being played as a joke. And that night, in our uh, basement den, I made a vow, like Bruce Wayne made a vow, and I said, somehow, someday, someway, I'm going to show the world the true Batman, as he was created by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, uh, elaborated on by Jerry Robinson as a creature of the night stalking terribly disturbed villains from the shadows, and try to eliminate the whole pow zap wham mentality from the collective consciousness of the world culture. That ultimately led me to buying the rights to Batman, the media rights to Batman, in 1979, and beginning what would turn out to be a 10-year quest to get our first Batman film, our revolutionary, dark and serious Batman film, out in 1989, after having been turned down by every single studio and mini-major in Hollywood, and being told it was the worst idea they ever heard. Um, so that was an adventure, and uh, we changed Hollywood, and I think we changed the, uh, the way popular culture is accepted, not only across borders, but really across cultures as well. Well, not to diminish any of those accomplishments, but I think I'd call that burying the lead. No. But, and also, you've, <laughs> you've executive produced every Batman movie since. Is that not correct? Yes, that is uh, correct. And uh, my autobiography was published by Chronicle Books. It's called The Boy Who Loved Batman. Thank you, Arlen, for the plug. <laughs> what did I call uh, Batman and me? The oh, one. Oh, oh, my God. He, uh, <laughs> sorry about that. That's okay. Bob, Bob Kane takes credit for everything. What can I tell you? <laughs> Listen, we were all boys who loved Batman. That was my point. It was a universal title. And Devin, well, you, you um, tell us about yourself, and you have a, a landmark contribution to Batman as well. I was not a boy who loved Batman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my name is Devin Grayson. I'm a writer, and unlike many of my colleagues, I actually came to comics somewhat late in life. I didn't pick up my first comic until after college. Um, but I have now been working in comics for the past 20 years, and one of my accomplishments under the mentorship of Benny O'Neill was launching and helping Batman Gotham Knights in 2000, uh, which was a on new ongoing Batman title. And I also worked a lot with his ancillary characters, Nightwing and Catwoman, and the whole amazing cast. Great. So... By the way, you know, Devin, we wanted more girls in comics when we were the boys who loved Batman. We always felt comics would be, you know, girls would enjoy them too. But, you know, uh, pop culture was very segregated back then. I went to... Uh, for having more women around has been true all the way up through Generation X, but something <laughs> happened after that, and there's now a weird gated community around it. But I'm just curious, what was the comic that got you at a later age into comics? 
It was actually Batman the Animated Series. Yes. Um, and it was a little bit what Michael was talking about, um, the perspective of a darker, more serious Batman. I know I'm talking about a cartoon, but that was very much uh, evident uh, in that series. And I sort of became fascinated with him. As, it was the first time I considered him as a real psychological being, and I was hooked immediately. Um, I want to touch on something that... that um Michael uh, mentioned earlier, and that's the, the 60s TV show with Adam West and, and Burt Ward. And I'm actually surprised at how many Batman fans or enthusiasts actually like that show. Um, I think when we did a, a panel here not long ago, Kevin Smith was on the was moderating it, and he was talking about how that was his first introduction yep. to him and how yep. he would come home every day after school and watch it on, on repeats. But I had the same reaction Michael did. Um, it's not. I, I just thought that was kind of almost criminal. How, how did how did the rest of you respond to uh, the '60s show, either contemporaneously or retroactively, when you saw it? Anybody? It's open to anybody. Well, this is a generational issue for Batman fans. Yes. When I was a hardcore Batman and comic book fan and collector, this TV series was the one and only interpretation of Batman out in the world. Uh, from all the people who never read a comic book in their lives. And he was being treated as a joke. That's why it killed me. And it's completely different now. Now we've got the movies out there and the video games and the animated series. There are so many different interpretations of Batman now. I embrace the show now as an entry point for, for young kids to come into the world of Batman and eventually grow up and able to access movies, the games, and the animation. Wow, so you've come a long way. You've forgiven. Ah. You for no, no, I do not forgive it for what it was at that time. But what it is today <laughs> is completely different, and it is just one of many different interpretations, just as valid as our Lego Batman is. You see, but Michael, I just don't believe Batman was ever meant to be made fun of. The fact that it was made fun of came because the creators from William Dozier on down did not really, they certainly didn't get the Carmen Infantino new look Batman. They were really translating the, the worst period of Batman stories, those 50s, you know, Sheldon Moldoff era uh, Batmans, which in the end obviously could be lampooned and made fun of. But if you were a Batman fan, like you said, a, general, a generational issue, if you were old enough to know the Batman from the comics before the TV show, especially the Infantino new look, which was a very cool, very sleek Batman, when the TV show came out, you know, we had been used to the Sean Connery, James Bond. Now, while there was some comic relief in those, those are serious spy movies, you cannot imagine Connery going into a discotheque and doing the Bond dance. So we were expecting Batman was going to be treated with the same seriousness of the Connery Bond. So imagine if you were a Bond fan, if the first James Bond you saw in the movies was the Casino Royale camp James Bond from 1967. You would be outraged. Well, as Batman fans that don't like the TV show or have what I call a love-hate relationship with it, it's because Batman was never meant to be made a joke or campy or made fun of. So yes, the fact that the show exists and was an entry point to so many and continues to be and is so well-loved by so many Batman fans, um, you know, we have to deal with it and accept it, but that doesn't mean 
it was a valid interpretation of the character. But you just said yeah, love when, hate. When little, yes. When, when little Kevin Smith was running home to see the reruns every day when he was eight, which was a, a generation removed from us, he had no idea they were making fun of Batman. He had no idea it was a comedy. And, and that is a marked difference as well. Poor me. I grew up with the adventures of Superman. That was done straight. Especially yeah. in the black and white era, it was right. a little bit scary. But that's my point. Well, it doesn't sound exactly. like you have much love. No, the love, listen, the love I have for it is the pop culture, 1966, you know, bright colors, tilted angles, you know, the, the Lichtenstein sound effects. You know, I became an artist, an art director. I appreciate the, the pop culture phenomenon of it. And I was there at the time and I bought just as much bat junk as everybody else. But that doesn't mean that, I mean... Listen, I was seven and a half years old when the show debuted. I remember the first episode, and I was a fan of the comics from the previous couple of years. So I remember five minutes into the first episode, I'm watching it with my older brother who was nine, and when, you know, they're going to drop the steel bars to the ground below, and Batman stops Robin and says, hold on, Robin, you, you know, it might in, in it, you might injure innocent civilians. And he takes the bat hook with the suction cup, sticks it to the brick wall, hangs up the bars, me and my brother look at each other in tandem and we go, they're making fun of Batman. Now, we didn't know the word camp. We were kids. But five, so when I, when I hear from people, oh, when I was a kid, I didn't know they were making fun of Batman. Well, I was a kid and I knew they were making fun of Batman and I didn't like it. But anyway. Okay, so Brian and Devin, what do you, Brian, what'd you think of it? I mean, how about Devin? Did you watch it when you were a kid? Well, I first encountered it in the late 70s, and it was already pretty out of its time by then. And what I remember is that it was on opposite the Brady Bunch. And I was <laughs> in a latitude program after school, and we would fight over which one uh, we wanted to watch. And I wanted to watch the Brady Bunch. It, it didn't um, speak to me. Fair enough. Well, Devin, were you reading comic books, Batman comic books nope, at that point? Not yet, no. Not, yep. not to the cartoons. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah, not, not, that was... Uh, Probably 20 years before I started reading comic books. So that was actually my first exposure to Batman, but it wasn't a memorable one. Right. It just didn't catch my imagination. How about you, Brian? I mean, definitely, as they, as they say, the nostalgia for different generations are different. When you're a little kid, you don't know that it is meant to be. I mean, this is all you know. Unless you knew the comics. Arlen right. had the comic beforehand. So if this is all you knew, then it seemed pretty straightforward to a little kid. Okay, so who is to each of you, we'll start, we'll go backward this time and start with Brian. Who is the definitive Batman to you? The definitive version of Batman, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the easiest would be Denny O'Neill, probably Neil Adams. That's probably the one that coalesced most of the different versions into the closest, solid, straightforward, as, as Arlen hands out his 30 years of De Neil Adams' Batman. 50. 50, oh shoot, you're right. 50 years of uh, Neil Adams' Batman. But yes, the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams took the ideas of the original, the, the 30s, early 40s, and added that to the early 70s. And it merged that those two, all those eras together into probably the closest we have to the, you know, the ideal Batman, I'd say. And who and what, what is the ideal Batman? The ideal Batman is dark, but perhaps not. I mean, Denny, you know, Neil Adams uh, has the, the famous Silent Night of Batman, where Batman takes a night off to go sing Christmas carols with the Gotham City Police Department. Denny O'Neill's Batman 
is a guy who has trouble defeating bad guys constantly. It's not that he's not a quote-unquote bat god. Denny O'Neill's Batman constantly has problems. So it's that nice little, it's the nice little mid, middle ground between all different areas, I'd say. So not too campy, but not too tortured. Not too tortured. I'd say that, yeah. That's, okay. I think that's fair. All right. And obviously it's Neil Adams' artwork, so it's hard to go wrong with Neil Adams' artwork. Devin, who's the um, quintessential or iconic definitive Batman to you? Uh, well, if we're talking about pop culture, I guess I'd say Kevin Conroy to go with Batman right. the Animated uh, Series. Um, but I would put forth that part of the character's allure is that everyone has an internal Batman that feels real to us and that's rightly always our favorite. Um, I guess often it's the first one we're exposed to, sometimes a later encounter. But um, I think it's probably always an amalgamation of all of that. Okay. That's mm. fair. Arlen? Well... You've already mentioned Neil Adams. You know, you have to remember after we just talked about the TV show, um, Neil Adams in one issue in 1968, only three months after the TV show left the air, draws Batman in a single comic book and gives us what we now know as the Dark Knight of today. There would be no Dark Knight today. I don't think Michael would have been so interested in getting the film rights when he talks about bringing the character back. It, it all is because of what Neil Adams did f now 51 years ago. And what is great about that Batman, why it's my favorite Batman, not only because the artwork is just visually, the Neil Adams Batman to me is the definitive Batman, um, but it's also because they jettisoned, for the most part, from 19, between 68 and 74 when Neil drew Batman, um, it was basically Batman solo. There was no Robin. I'm of the small minority that thinks Batman jumped the shark in the spring of 1940 when Robin was introduced. To me, Batman was based on the shadow, right? Can you imagine if the shadow had an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old boy named Light Lad in bright color? So I never got Robin. During the Neil Adams era, no Batcave, no Batmobile, no Robin. I mean, yes, there were a couple stories here and there, but for the most part, it's solo Batman swinging on a, on a, on a cord to get to where he's going. He doesn't tuck his cape under his rear end and get into a car and drive somewhere. That's the Neil Adams Batman, and that's why that will always be um, the definitive Batman. And by the way, the stories weren't bad either. Michael, who was the Batman that made you, that inspired this dream in you? I can only explain this through an anecdote, so bear with me. <laughs> uh, in, in 1986, I get a call from an exec at the studio says we just finished this film we got a final um a fine cut we want you to see it's called peewee's big adventure <laughs> and i saw it and i said i gotta meet this guy who did this <laughs> and i wound up having three lunches with tim burton and my job initially was to a introduce him to the dark batman the true batman uh as he was created and B, probably more importantly, keep him away from all the silly, crazy stuff over the years. So I gave Tim, out of my collection, to read the first 10 or 12 issues of Detective Comics with Batman in it, up until Batman number one, uh, spring 1940, which not only had Robin in it, but introduced the Joker and the Catwoman. 
The second group I gave him was the Neil Adams Denny O'Neill run from the seventies with Rajal Ghoul and Talia right. uh, included in that. The third thing I gave him was the Marshall Rogers Steve Englehart run, yes. which had another dark yep. and yep. darkly romantic uh, <laughs> version of Batman yep. in it. And those I felt by giving those to Tim Burton. That would give him the best concept of the true, dark, and serious Batman. So, Perfect choice. Uh, that, that's the best non-answer I can give you to your question. Well, it's a great answer. But um, I'm surprised that nobody mentioned uh, Frank Miller. What, what do we think about Frank Miller? I was just thinking that. But how do we get through this whole conversation without him coming up? <laughs> Go ahead, Devin. Talk about him now. He sounds, sounds nice and dark, like, like you like it. Well, I, I did love um, The Dark Knight Returns. That, that was, um, that work had a lot of impact. And again, it, it gave me a Batman I could believe in that sort of crystallized a lot of what I was starting to suspect about the character. Um, but it's it's harder to talk about now because of later developments. Right, right, right. Well, well but can I, no, go ahead. You also have to remember when Neil Adams left Batman in 1974, there's a 12-year drought of not exactly what I would call the prime year of what, Batman's published what, career. What was going on there? Well, with the exception of the Marshall Rogers, with the exception of a couple little asterisks here and there, by and large, part of the impact of what Miller's Dark Knight did for a whole new generation of readers was, yes, it gave them a, 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 a radical reinterpretation of Batman because a great version of Batman hadn't been done for o almost a decade. Right. So it was fresh, it was different. But it was basically Miller doing a kind of a giant Jack Kirby Batman <laughs> with tiny ears. You know, Neil Adams spent his whole career lengthening Batman's ears, and along comes Frank Miller in 1986, brings back the short ears from the TV show, and now everybody draws Batman with short ears. So I digress, but yes, Miller's Batman had a lot of impact and it's it's really the Batman we've had going on now 33 years. And the influence on the movies and on everything else, um, for better or for worse, I'm, I'm not a fan. I mean, I appreciate The Dark Knight as like a Batman annual, just like the way Alan Moore considers The Killing Joke as great as that was. He goes, it was like a Batman annual, like a long Batman story. I'd like to think Dark Knight is just like, oh, a what if Batman retires in the future, Batman annual, and who knew it would become the template for the next 30 years when you talk about the psychotic Batman, the Batman that has a giant construction worker's belt and clodhopper boots, that Batman. That's not my Batman, but that's the Dark Knight Batman that we've been living with for 30 years. I think what might have appealed to him to my generation was his, was the anger and the world we were living in was so dangerous right. and awful that you sort of needed someone that fierce to stand up to it. Yeah. Wait, we're talking about nineteen eighty six? Yeah. When is the world when's the world not been nah. uh, dangerous? Um it seems but wait, Michael, what uh what how do you come down on the Frank Miller uh argument, I guess. Well, first of all, you have to, I believe, understand that the impact of The Dark Knight Returns was just as great, if not greater, in what it achieved worldwide, which was telling the world 
that comic books right. are no longer just for kids, that there's this new thing for called graphic novels right. that uh, Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns uh, blew the market open on it. Absolutely. And, and the impact on us was that it convinced Warner Brothers, which owned DC Comics, Excellent. and I think it convinced DC as well, oh my God, these are not just for kids anymore. We can put as much as $45 million into <laughs> a blockbuster film and have it appeal to right. adults in all age groups around the world. So the impact it had on the sophistication and the perception by the public on comic books cannot begin to be measured, and it, its impact lasts through today. But also, wouldn't, wouldn't Denny, I mean, we speak of the influence it's had post-Dark Knight. If it sta stayed with Dark Knight Returns, perhaps it wouldn't have had. But Denny O'Neill clearly adopted the Frank Miller Batman as the Batman right. by having Miller do year one after a crisis in Infinity Earth where they changed all the continuity and said, hey, Frank Miller, you do Batman. We're going to take your lead. And that was clearly O'Neill's choice. And why? how could they not follow that if that's what they say, here's what we're starting with? But that's also what I think was great about the Batman animated series by Bruce Timm is that it took elements of the Dark Knight, but it also took elements of the Neil right. Adams Batman, elements from the very early Batman, um, and elements from things like Alex Toth and other artists. Oh, yeah, and exactly, yeah. that was the genius of Bruce Timm. And why I believe, to me, the Batman animated series is my favorite translation of Batman to another medium. I like that version more than even the live action version. Sort of the producer of how many films? Well, I know, I'm saying, listen, I, I'm just, listen, I'm just saying, as a Batman fan, that's where my heart is. You get your foot in the quicksand. Um, Bruce Tim and um, Paul Dini and Eric Radomski and yes. Andrea Romano, Kevin Conroy, uh, Mark Hamill, Alan Burnett, these are folks who are brilliant. Exactly. And, um, I, I would go along with the fact that perhaps the greatest stories in the media ever told on Batman were told in the animated series. Um, and you go back to things like Mr. Freeze, what they were yeah. able to do with that character was amazing. Yeah. Uh, if you ask me what is the best Batman story told in media that I've been involved with, uh, I would have to say you can make an argument that it's Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Ah. <laughs> Tell us why, Michael. Because it has such emotional depth it is um, plot-intensive but character-driven. And it's not about blowing stuff up. It's not about showing off special effects. Uh, it's not about catering to the toy companies and the Happy Meals and anything like that. It is just straight, true to the integrity of the character, character-driven story. And, and that's amazing. And I'll contend to this day, if anyone decides to build a Mount Rushmore to the Joker... <laughs> yeah, Nicholson will be there, Heath Ledger will be there, but I'll tell you, Mark Hamill will be there as well. That's really interesting. Let's, let's talk about that for a second and the, and the idea. Um, most people would, if it were asked to pick, uh, to name a Batman villain, they would say the Joker. Is, is there someone who you think is more interesting as a villain than, than the, uh, the, the Joker? That's my first question. The second part of this question, it's a good question for you because you're a historian. Um, you go back and you read the original Batman, number 20, uh, DC Detective Comics number 27, it's a very 
grounded in reality story about a guy, a businessman who's right, right. who's trying to rip off his partners. I mean, what was the great which you know was taken from the pulps by directly I mean, by what, finger, right? Yeah. What was the great appeal of that? I, I don't. I mean, and then at some point, I think it was the visual in, look of Batman. Yeah, that is the key. I mean, he's got the most. Maybe with the exception of Spider-Man's costume by Ditko, I think Batman's costume, particularly that cowl, is one of the most unique, if not the most unique costume in comics. And the fact that it is the sort of dark, ver you know, Superman is bright primary colors and Batman is this darker character that, you know, that's the whole yin-yang of life itself where we all have that dark side and our light side and good and evil. And so I think the visual iconicness of Batman, and you know, it goes back to images of bats and vampires and Satan. Yeah. So the whole iconography of Batman, to me, is really what keeps drawing us to the character. There's no other character that looks like that. Brian, who's the most interesting Batman villain? I mean, it's sad. It's, uh, it's like saying your favorite Bob Dylan song is like a Rolling Stone. <laughs> Yes. But the Joker, hey, the Joker's a great villain. Yeah. There's, there's really no two doubts about it. Hey, Devin, when you were writing Batman, who was the villain you enjoyed writing the most? My favorite to write was actually Hugo Strange. Uh -huh. But I think that's because my mom's a therapist and my dad's a sociologist. So that, <laughs> no. that evil felt very present to me. Enough said. <laughs> so you were working, you were working some things out. <laughs> well, Devin, you must like uh, the TV show Gotham, which made primary use of yeah. Hugo Strange. Yeah. I don't actually watch that. That feels too campy to me, too. Not well, my Batman. Well, well, let me just ask you, Michael, who's your uh, most interesting villain? We'll get back to Gotham, because I think that's I also want to add my villain. I have an interesting oh, villain. Okay, Michael, who's your most interesting villain? Number one, inarguably, the Joker is the greatest supervillain created in the history of comics, period. Whoa. End of story. Um, I was lucky enough to have known and met and talked to Bill Finger. Um, Jerry Robinson was a friend and mentor. Jerry created the Joker with... Uh, Bill Finger, and I also knew Bob Kane very well, so I have heard a lot of the stories from all of them. The Joker and Batman are so close to each other uh, psychologically that based on the trauma that young Bruce Wayne experienced, he very well could have fallen to the dark side of that thin line had it not been for people like Alfred um, or Commissioner Gordon um, who anchored him to his humanity, but it, it, it's a very fine line. And when you look at Batman as being cloaked in the dark, in the darkness, in the guise of the monstrous bat, yet being good, and then you look at him in this eternal dance he does with the Joker, who is is this seething horror lying beneath the mask of the carnival, right out of Edgar Allan Poe's cask of Amontillado. I mean, that's all amazing. Um, the one point I want to add on Batman's appeal, remember, he's the second superhero. There was one before him. And the fact they come out with the second one and he has no superpowers. He has a super, he's a superhero with no superpowers. I think that was one of the intrinsic and sustaining elements that have carried him through the last 80 years. It's the whole God and man. Yeah. Michael, you said you talked to Bill Finger and Jerry Robinson. Was the Joker always conceived of as this sort of mirror image of uh, of Batman, or was that something that developed over time? And if it developed over time, who, who came up with that? 
It developed over time. Originally, he was created. The reason that Jerry suggested they do something like the Joker was he felt after a year or so of Batman fighting so many racketeers and mobsters and scientists that they needed something big and colorful. And he was inspired, as was Bill, by Dick Tracy and the comic strips and Terry and the Pirates uh, in terms of the advantage of having kind of over-the-top colorful supervillains. So uh, that was the original intent going in. Okay. You said, Arlen, you were going to talk about your villain, your most interesting villain? Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's funny. The, the only thing I want to say about the Joker, just to put it, is that I think a lot of that psychological insight about him being the sort of dark side and flip side of Batman, that really comes out of Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. Right. If you look at the great Joker stories before that, including Neil Adams' five-way revenge and, and the Marshall Rogers strip where the Joker was a prominent villain, there, there really isn't, and the Joker even before that, going back to the 40s, while he was the arch villain and number one villain, I don't think that whole psychological insight, which later showed up in Michael's Dark Knight films, um, that really comes post, which is now 31 years um, right. of vintage. So, you know, that psychotic Joker, that's the flip side of Batman, I think was really Moore's achievement with The Killing Joke, which is why The Killing Joke is considered one of the great Batman stories of all time, right. with some pretty good art, by the way, by Brian Boland. Right. But my personal favorite Batman villain is right just when the TV show debuts, DC puts out the, the single greatest Batman story of what was called the New Look, which was Death Knocks Three Times, written by Bob Kaniger, not usually a superhero writer, but whenever he chose to write superheroes, especially in the 60s, he usually wrote an incredible story. And he comes up with this character, Death Man, you know, a guy in a skull with a black suit with a white bones, which you can find in mythology going back to probably the cave paintings. But... It was such a great story, and it was really the darkest Batman from that period, and really just ironic that it, it, it fell out just as the TV show debuted, and it's almost a what if, had the TV show never happened, had Batman continued along the Death Knocks Three Times story with that character, who knows where they would have taken Batman. Sheldon Moldoff do that one, right? Uh, it was a Sheldon Moldoff so Georgia. That did yeah. not fit as well with the, the But even right? for them, it was it was the darkest they had ever been. Right. And I, I attribute that to Bob Kaniger. And weird six-issue run he did, right? Where, right. It was just a one issue, but like I said, great Gil Kane cover. But when I, again, I was a kid at the time, you know, that, that golden age of childhood thing. But for me, that character is will, will always be, even if it was just a one issue. Yeah, Mark Wade said the exact. Remember, as a kid reading it, the exact same reaction. Yeah, How I think I think and Michael, you were reading that, you know, when you were like a teenager. Wasn't that an incredible issue? It was an incredible issue, and um, in terms of the villains, absolutely, the most incredible issue I ever read of Batman impacting his character was Detective Comics 439. Yes, I, I am a geek. Um, <laughs> Night of the Stalker, in which uh, Batman yes. does not speak one word of dialogue. Yep. And I think it is the most emotionally impactful Batman story in history. Yes. Speaking of emotional impact, Michael, uh, I lived through 9-11 here in New York, and I lived downtown in Battery Park City. So it had a huge impact on my life. And, you know, all these movies that were coming out afterward about it, 
I really thought the movie that captured the sort of anxiety and fear and um, just unsettledness of life in New York in the aftermath of 9-11 was the Heath Ledger film more than anything else. You know, this sort of hyper-real uh, show. And I actually think Gotham, the TV show, did a pretty good job of that or is doing a pretty good job of that as well. How do you all come down on the Gotham um, I know Devin, you're not watching it, but are the rest of you watching it? And how do you, what do you think about it? I was watching for a while. <laughs> and uh, for a while I was doing, I was, or about.com, I was doing a Batman um, site. And so I had to keep up on Gotham. And when that site went away, then I stopped watching Gotham. So. I, I've watched it from the beginning and I've kept up with it. I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would because I would, I never watched Smallville because I was pissed off. I'm like, how do you do a show about Superboy or Superman without the characters? So I never got into Smallville, but I thought my reaction to Gotham would be the same. But I began to appreciate the, you know, Bruno Heller, the showrunners. They brought a style to the show. I liked the actors and actresses, and I thought the writing was good. And, you know, the way it's developed over time, I've actually really enjoyed it. And I'm kind of sorry to see it go, you know, I uh, wish I it could a, run for a few more it's years. It's a beautiful show. Yeah. yeah. Michael, what do you think of Gotham? My friend TJ Scott directed a whole bunch of them, and he's an incredibly talented guy. Anything TJ does, my my cowl is off to him. <laughs> Next <laughs> question. Okay. <laughs> uh, Devin, we've been sort of dancing around this question, but how can anyone prefer Superman to Batman? Woo. <laughs> Well, I think we talked, you know, the idea of the primary hero, you know, primary colors versus the dark. And I think there's a lot about the character that's very appealing. And in some ways, I mean, I'm obviously in Camp Batman, but I think you could argue that he's a more mature character, personally. Hmm. Um Superman, to me, the story is about restraint, right? He can do absolutely anything, but he doesn't. He holds back all the time. He keeps himself safe and heroic. Batman, to me, is about the potency of grief. You know, we all have a part of us that knows what it feels like to be helpless, and we can imagine striking back at that with sort of great precision and efficacy. And um, But there's also, there's a little bit of an arrested development in that, right? That, that he's, he's sort of perpetually eight years old, uh, angry and and channeling that grief and rage, but channeling it very effectively, which is part of his power. Um, so I don't, you know, is it extroverts like Superman and introverts like Batman? I'm not sure, <laughs> but, but they are both, uh, they're, they're, as you start to explore Superman, there actually is a lot going on with that character too. But I, you know, well, you, you wonder something interesting. more appealing to me. That was really, uh, really insightful. Thank you. We know Jerry Seinfeld prefer Superman. Anyone here? Go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, Devin, it's interesting you bring up that aspect of Batman. You know, Superman was supposed to come from a planet that had been blown up. You know, maybe had Superman carried around some of that tragedy. I mean, okay, he was a baby, but, you know, maybe they should have infused uh, Superman, not only with all the knowledge of the universe, but maybe baby Kal-El should have been infused with the memory of the entire world that got blown up and all of its people. And maybe had they developed that aspect of Superman because he does come from tragedy. And yet the Superman I grew up with, you know, the Kurt Swan, you know, uh, yeah. uh, you know, cop on the block kind of good guy. There was never that aspect of him 
that was developed very rarely in very in a handful of stories. Probably maybe. because of the Kents, because he gets such a good, wholesome, grounding family. Right. And I mean, I guess Bert gets a little bit of that with Alfred, and, and we, you know, as we were saying earlier, that's his attachment to his mm. humanity, absolutely. But it's still primarily like all that darkness and loneliness was right there on the surface, and he acts very much in the back of the Superman mythos, which is interesting. Right, but I, I think also the reason why some people can love Superman more than Batman. And I, I touched on this uh, ten minutes ago. I think, you know, it's the God-Man dichotomy. Superman represents the God come to Earth. It's the Christ aspect. For Jor El so loved the Earth, he gave his only begotten Son with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Um, so the appeal of a God coming down to Earth to save us has universal, timeless appeal. Batman represents us human beings yeah. with our faults, our dark sides, trying to become like gods, trying to become heroes, which is really what the whole role of heroes in mythology and literature and art is supposed to inspire us to become heroic. So that's why Batman has so much appeal as well. But that's, again, also why Superman has great appeal, you know, equally. Well, hold, hold on a second, guys. We got people talking over each other. Uh, Devin and Michael, you both were were going to chime in, so why don't we? Yeah, go ahead, Devin. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I absolutely love that summary and the idea of, of God versus man and, and our archetypal heroes. And that's my, my new favorite answer to why I prefer Batman to Superman is just that as an atheist, I have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what were you going to say? Yeah, if I could make this super simplistic and bring it down 10 notches, and this may be a generational thing. When I was growing up, um, it, let's call it between the ages of four and eight, Batman was too scary for me. Uh, I remember looking at the covers of some of the comic books, and I retreated immediately back into Superman, who, of course, was comfortable. He was on TV all the time. And... As a kid growing up, Superman is the embodiment of every child's wish fulfillment. Whether it's flying through the air, saving your parents or the girl next door or the guy next door, whatever it might be. Um, X-ray vision, super strength and vulnerability. Total, total wish fulfillment. Yeah. And um, if you look at it that way, and speaking now gener generationally, Superman, reading Superman comics when I was a little kid, about the guy who did everything on the straight and narrow, did not kill, had a code of honor. Superman, more than any other character, actually impacted my own sense of a moral code and an ethics code. Yes. And I know everyone I speak to from my generation and the one that followed me will say the same exact thing. And how do you measure that uh, and the impact of that? And I think that quality alone um, is a reason to follow Superman, especially when you're a kid. That's great. Thank you. Well, he's the ultimate father figure, too. Uh, so much of what you're describing, teaching you right from wrong, ethics, these are traditionally, you know, the sort of parental roles, and Superman is the ultimate. And by the way, Jerry Siegel creates him, we found out years later, because his father was killed a couple years before, I think 1930, um, in a holdup, Got of a heart attack from the anxiety and the shock. And three years later, Siegel creates Superman, who's really the ultimate 
father again come down from heaven to be the great father figure. Uh, Brian, what do you think of the um, adage that every generation gets the Batman it deserves? <laughs> well, that goes to what Devin said before, right? She said uh, the Batman of the 80s, that's who they deserved, right? Pretty much. <laughs> I think that's probably that's probably fairly recent. That's probably pr pretty good description of any superhero. Well, I was right? going to ask you that. Is it is it true of Superman, for example? Do we get the Superman? Is is Batman more mutable than and fluid than than Superman? More so, but obviously people have tried to do once Superman. That it's that hilarious thing where, except for that brief period in 1966 to 68, Superman was so by far more popular than Batman. For yeah. even after, I mean, even even after when Neil Adams was making an amazing Batman, Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen outsold yeah. like every Marvel comic. Right. So uh, even as recent as like 1980, DC's most popular superhero series was still Superman. It wasn't selling as much as it was, but no one else was selling that much either. So and then New Teen Titans and stuff came about, whatever. And then Batman, obviously. But again, John Byrne's reboot of uh, right when Dark Knight Returns was happening in '86. John Byrne was rebooting Superman, and Superman sales went up again. It really wasn't until the uh, Tim Burton Batman that Batman, the, the shift happened, and it really hasn't looked back since, that Batman has been the dominant character right. since. And so to that point, Superman has often tried to... I, I think DC ever since has been searching for its Superman slash Dark Knight, like right. Dark Knight treatment. And there have been some great Superman things that have been done, uh, All-Star Superman Amazing, and right. Frank Quietly. I think people have tried to do it, but I guess there hasn't been a Superman graphic novel to match for Superman what Dark Knight did for Batman that might reinvent the character for a new generation. Superman is in. What? Yeah, Superman is in Frank Miller's... Uh, well, he's a part of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying there isn't that standalone... Superman, your one's going to change everything, right? What were you going to say, Michael? Yeah, um, if I could add a point or two on this. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of was, in fact, when I acquired the rights to Batman from DC Comics back in 1979 to go out and make these dark and serious movies, um, the president of DC Comics said, Michael, I hate to see you lose your money. Don't you <laughs> no. understand, since Batman went off the air on TV, the brand is, and this is a quote, as dead as a dodo. <laughs> nobody, he said, nobody's interested in Batman anymore. And in fact, it wasn't that long before that, that um, DC was considering canceling You're Detective right. Comics. Paul Levitt saved it, yeah. You know, after the show, the sales had plummeted to yeah. such a degree. And to take Batman at a time when, quote, he's dead as a dodo, and then over the next 10 years, get that first movie out in a dark and serious way that reinvented him to the point where just this week, one of the heads of DC Comics went public and said, yes, Batman is far more popular today than Superman is. Absolutely. And so to me, that is like my own personal great dream come true um and it's it's something i will never forget that's great yeah it's great well it's, i could we could talk about batman forever and, and I, especially with you guys because you're so brilliant and so insightful but we are uh, coming to a, a, a point where we're going to end the podcast i wanted to just go around the room and um ask each of you to uh tell us just about you know if there's anything what you're up to now if there's anything 
you're interested in promoting and how people can follow you on um, social media. Michael, my next my question for you is, are we going to have another Batman? Are you going to be working on another Batman movie? Matt Reeves is amazing and has a vision for the next solo Batman movie that he will be executing that thrills me to my toes. In addition, on October 4th, um, we have the Joker movie coming out, uh, courtesy of Todd Phillips, Joaquin Phoenix, Robert De Niro, uh, which is the way I look at it. It's like it feels like a weird lower budget crime drama that, again, is character driven, plot intensive with a with a Martin Scorsese feel to it. And I think in this world in which we live, where it is a cluttered, saturated landscape in movies, TV, and animation of comic book stuff, doing something unique and different is great. And I think everybody's going to find this to be quite unique. That sounds great. Can we follow you on on social media at all? Yeah, I am on uh, Facebook uh, for uh, those of you, I guess, now my age. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I do quite a bit of posting on there. Great. Devin, how about you? What's next for you and how do we, how do listeners get in touch with you? I'm still writing comics. I'm doing a lot of work for Marvel and IDW these days. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Gothamet. Uh, and uh, my website is DevinGrayson.net. Great. Brian? Um, you'll find me pretty much every day on CBR.com. <laughs> I mean, you can. I mean, I'm on Twitter too, but really, just if you Google Brian Cronin and CBR, you'll find tons of articles. Okay. All right. And Arlen, what have you got coming up? Okay. Well, you can find me at my website, ArlenSchumer.com, and um, I've been doing some pop culture, what I call visual lectures, at a great little cabaret theater in New York City the last couple months, and in May, which is technically the 80th anniversary of Batman. I'll be doing what I call a visual lecture on 50 years of Neil Adams' Batman, a kind of a retrospective on Neil's first year doing the character. And um, so you can go to uh, triadnyc.com. Make sure the www is before that for some reason. www.triadnyc.com for information about that. And that'll be Saturday, May 18th at 2 o'clock. Great. All right, I want to thank all our panelists, all four of our panelists, for their brilliant insights and sense of humor. And I also want to thank from the Bailey Center, Maria Pagano, Phil Marshall, Caroline Quigley, Caitlin Caligari, Nick Scharf, Bernadette Smith, Laura Earhart, and Kishona Johnson. A huge thanks to Mark, Mark Tyler Nobleman, Paul Levitz, and Michael, your friend and mine, Gary Mariano, possibly the coolest person on the planet. No so, question. Yeah. So check us out at PaleyCenter.org and PaleyMatters.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Paley. And thank you for listening and thank you all again.